If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. as a parent hasn't gnashed their teeth when their kids have been fighting and you just want to bang their heads together but they're too old to do that that's the situation Henry II faced for most of the 1170s and 1180s Um, so there's also a very human story of a despairing parent trying to get their kids to play nicely that was Nick Barrett talking about his new book on the 12th century Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's guest is Nick Barrett, who's a historian and author as well as being a TV personality, who is probably best known for his appearances on the BBC genealogical programme, Who Do You Think You Are? His most recent book explores the battle for the Plantagenet crown between Henry II and his ambitious sons in the 12th century. And our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, caught up with him to find out more. I'm talking to genealogist and historian Nick Barrett to discuss his new book, The Restless Kings, which chronicles a civil war that erupted in the late 12th century between King Henry II of England and his sons, which included future monarchs Richard I and John. It's a conflict that Nick himself describes as a cross between Game of Thrones and The Sopranos. Um, Nick, for those listeners not familiar with the story, could you give us an overview of what happened in this conflict? Yes, of course. Um, In many ways, this is the prequel to Magna Carta, the culmination of this family feud, which in many ways also has echoes in the current political situation with Britain leaving the EU. Um, So it's a family squabble. Henry II was one of those great European monarchs that no one really has known about, I guess. Um, Through accidents and birth and fortuitous marriage, he brought together the the, the crown of England, um, large parts of France, stretching from Normandy to the north, right down to Aquitaine and Poitou to the south. And so in many ways, he was this giant on the European scene. But he had a large family. And this is where my love of medieval history and genealogy collides. And as with all great soap operas, father fought against sons, his wife conspired against him. And it all came to a head over issues such as land and the succession. Who would get what when Henry eventually died? And this was in 1173. He was also, in many ways, trying to impose his style of government on each of those territories. So he was a bit of a control freak, and that's where the title of the book comes from, The Restless Kings. He rampaged around his territories trying to keep control. Okay, so could we just go into um, Henry II's reign in a little bit more detail now? And how had he changed... England, the Kingdom of England, in the two decades before the Civil War broke out? Well, the England that he inherited was, quite frankly, anarchic. 
it had been riven by civil war between Henry's mother, Matilda, who saw herself as the rightful heir, and um, her cousin, Stephen, who had grabbed the throne when Henry I had died. And the 19 years in which they fought had divided the aristocracy, crippled the administration, and reduced large parts of the countryside to rack and ruin. People dying because they couldn't grow enough corn because it was being cut down to feed the marauding armies. So England was a pretty grim place to live. Henry's job was to restore law and order. Firstly, he tackled all of these factions by effectively imposing his own new way of running things. He created a stable bureaucracy. He imposed central rule from London by bringing many parts of the judicial system and the accounting system together. And that way, with that all settled, he could then go off and really devote his attention to where his heart lay, and that was the continent. Right, okay. So you say his, his heart lay with the continent. Why was that? That's where he was born, and that's how he saw himself. So we see him as an English king, but actually he was a European king. He would struggle to call himself French because back in the 12th century, there was no real concept of France as a modern entity with borders the way we know it today. It was a series of principalities or duchies or counties with the king of France exercising nominal lordship over them all. Henry was a duke in his own right of Normandy, a count of Anjou, and by right of his wife, a duke of Aquitaine as well. So he had more land, more power, more wealth, more influence than the nominal king of France. And of course, that caused a problem. And um, what kind of man was Henry? What, what, what made him stand out as a king? He had a very strong personality. He also had a very strong intellect. And it's very easy to portray him as a warrior king, fighting his enemies, fighting his family. But actually, his upbringing, whilst the Civil War was happening in England, was very cultural. He was educated with various intellectuals drawn from Europe who also had access to Arabic texts from Spain. So he steeped himself in learning and culture, um, history, but also various government techniques. So in many ways, he was a very intelligent man, but he had a very fiery personality, which he got both from his mother and also from his father, who was seen as a bit of a sly, conniving ruler. Um, Put all those things together, you've got a formidable man. Can he be described as one of the most powerful men in Europe at, at this time? Undoubtedly, yes. Uh, not just because of the land, but also because of the political acumen he displayed. Uh, The Europe that we're talking about is very much still a legacy of the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century. Um, Lots of power blocks coalescing. The main ones are the ones that Henry assembled. The Holy Roman Empire, which at this stage was largely some of the Germanic states into Italy, with the Pope increasing their power base, and the King of France. Those are the main players. By the 1170s, 1180s, Henry was seen as the senior statesman on this stage, to the point where, with all the problems in the Middle East and the Christian lands under threat from Muslim forces, the throne of Jerusalem was offered to Henry as the warrior king, even though he didn't fight that much, who could come along, lead an army and save Christendom from the marauding forces. He was the go-to person. He was even used to broker deals between Philip II of France and some of his rivals. So he was a politician, a diplomat, a statesman, a power broker. How difficult did he find it to keep 
control over his vast territories. I mean, was that a challenge in itself? It was, because I don't think he ever really intended on his death to keep them in one single pair of hands. I think he realised from experience the task was too great. We were very um, keen with the uh, benefit of hindsight to look at empires and acquisition of land through history, not just Henry, but throughout the ages. And if you look at it more closely, people like Charlemagne from the ninth century, when he died, having brought together one of the largest groups of land since the Roman Empire, he was trying to divide it up. That's where modern Europe was formed. Henry was trying to do exactly the same thing. He had a cunning plan to borrow from Blackadder. He wanted Normandy in England to stay with his eldest son, Henry the Young King. He recognised that Richard, his next oldest um, son, was in many ways best suited to rule in Aquitaine. Geoffrey was ushered into Brittany by marrying the heiress. And it was poor old John, John Lackland, that Henry laughingly called him when he was born quite unexpectedly, um, was eventually um, fobbed off with Ireland, even though John went down on bended knee to try and get his father's permission to go off and fight for Jerusalem. So Henry didn't have this sense that his lands that he brought together would stay together after he died. And I think the exertions of constantly dealing with rebellion, with protest, with trying to standardise the method of governance, let alone the fact that you've got a rising power in the French king, not Louis VII so much, but his young son, Philip Augustus, again, one of the great figures of the medieval period. That just wore him down. He could not see any way of bringing them together. It was really his son's visions that these lands should remain intact. Richard and then John, they wanted to keep as much together as they could. So what was the French view of, of the rise of England? Was there a lot of tension between the two nations? Well, I think that's one of the key things. It wasn't seen in those terms. It wasn't seen as England versus France. That happens much, much later. And what they saw wasn't so much the rise of England, but the rise of the House of Anjou. Uh, the French crown was essentially the greatest of all the counts. The Ile de France, which saw the count based in Paris, had then assumed the crown, which is where the Capetian line grew up. So they held this nominal lordship over all the other dukes and counts, but it wasn't a nation state the way we'd see it today. Particularly the further south you go to the rim of this territory, which recognised the king of the Franks, the French king, um, the power got weaker and weaker. What you had with Henry is for the first time, several of these smaller power blocks coming together in the hands of one family or one man. And that was a problem. That really challenged the authority of firstly with the seventh and then Philip Augustus to exert his right as king because they simply had too much power. They had autonomy. And that's why a lot of the tactics were to drive a wedge between Henry and his sons, divide and then conquer. Okay, so so on the eve of the Civil War, Henry is one of the most powerful men in Europe. Where did it start going wrong for him? Why did he fall out in such, such spectacular fashion with, with the rest of his family? <laughs> he clarified things. Now, there's a lesson. Okay. <laughs> he actually set out as part of his ongoing disputes with Beckett, which has been rumbling on for a number of years. So this is this is Thomas Beckett, Archbishop it of Canterbury. Is, yeah. yeah, one of um, Henry's closest friends and advisors, the Lord Chancellor, who he had appointed to Canterbury in the hope that he would support Henry's desire to exert control over the church, which, as we know, went spectacularly wrong um, and ended up with Beckett being this irritant in his side. As part of the eventual peace settlement that was brokered before Beckett's murder, Henry was forced to clarify his position on the succession. And in doing so, his sons thought that that wasn't such a great thing. 
Now, Henry the Young King, who was assigned England and Normandy, felt that he was given title without power and he wanted to control at least one of those, pointing out quite fairly that by the time his father had reached the age that Henry the Young King was, he'd been given control of Normandy to govern by way of practice. Equally, Richard wanted to make sure that his role in Aquitaine was protected and he didn't like the suggestion that land might need to be carved out for either Geoffrey or eventually John. So by clarifying his intention... He made it much easier to create criticism. And of course, with this whole political tension between Henry and Louis in the background, Louis saw an opportunity to effectively bring the young sons over to his side and cause trouble for the father. And um, can we talk a little bit about Henry the Young King? I know you just mentioned him. Why did Henry II take the decision to have him crowned while Henry II was still alive? And that was quite an unusual move. Is that right? It was the only time in English history that the heir to the throne was crowned in the lifetime of the reigning monarch. I think there are two reasons for this. Firstly, you can actually look back to some of the Frankish and Carolinian traditions of crowning an heir to get the acceptance of the aristocrats. And let's not make no bones about it. The civil war between Stephen and Matilda still was fresh in many people's minds, the horror of having a contested succession, the breakdown of law and order and the anarchy. So in one sense, that provides some sort of stability in a statement of intent. But let's make no bones about it. Henry II wanted to rub Beckett's nose in this. He wanted to undermine the dignity of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he claimed to have had papal dispensation to allow another prelate to come in and conduct the ceremony. So really, it was a huge, giant snub to Beckett. And it worked. It worked. It really riled him and actually helped bring a reconciliation much closer. But but did it backfire on Henry in the long run and that it made Henry Henry the young king more ambitious and um, wanting that power maybe sooner than would have otherwise been the case? Uh, it potentially, yeah. Now, Henry the young king is, is one of those romantic figures um, in terms of his period of which he was living, he was one of the great tournament aficionados. He would spend time and a huge amount of money traveling uh, to tournaments, practicing the battles with all the various other knights. You know, he was in that sense, a real warrior, but he was lazy. He wanted power without the trappings of actually doing any work. He was the complete antithesis in that way to his father. Um, So I think it probably gave him an axe to grind. I think the main thing he was concerned about wasn't so much the daily grinds of doing the work, but the money that went with it. He wanted to support his luxurious lifestyle. And every time Henry gave him the opportunity to get his hands dirty, for example, helping out quell some of the southern rebellions that Richard had stirred up in his attempts to control local aristocrats, Henry rejected that opportunity. In fact, quite the opposite. He sided with the rebels in an attempt to leverage Richard out so he could then take over Aquitaine. So he's a he's a really difficult character to sum up. Glamorous and the hero of his household knights. He's the figure, don't forget, that brought William Marshall another great figure of the age, onto the stage. So he's a famous knight who served uh, a number of kings, didn't he? Yeah, he served four kings. He served under Henry II, Richard, John, and ultimately Henry III, securing the regency government so that the young king, Henry III, would actually succeed after the death of John. He's an incredible figure. And that was the sort of culture we're talking about, um, wandering troubadours, singing songs all about the martial prowess of the knights. Uh, that was the area that Henry, the young king, was most interested in. 
Um, what was the dynamic like between the brothers? I mean, was Henry the Young King the chief agitator in the rebellion against Henry II? He was, but I think you have to look long and hard at Geoffrey's role in this. Henry was a likable character. Um, he might not be that intelligent in the way he played his hand, um, but he was likable enough. Geoffrey, well, if you look at the Chronicles, they say he is really untrustworthy, an oily figure, smarmy and superficially nice, but behind your back, he'd stick the knife in. And he seems to have instigated quite a lot of the later tension and certainly played a role in stirring up trouble, uh, 1173 to 4. Um how does Eleanor of Aquitaine play into this, Henry II's wife? I mean, she she joined side with the rebellion. Is that is that right? It is, yeah. Uh, she is the catalyst for the Southern Revolt. Uh, she sees an opportunity to assert her authority. She, again, is one of those incredible figures. About time, we're finding a lot more about her through recent scholarship. Um, we know that she probably felt marginalised when Henry decided to intervene directly in Aquitanian politics. And again, this is where some of the division of lands comes in. He's making decisions on his wife's behalf. And let's not forget, she is the person who brings Aquitaine into this family business. It's by her right as the heiress of the Counts of um, Aquitaine. She had first of all married Louis and brought Aquitaine to him. And then, of course, when they divorced, it comes to Henry. So she still feels that she is the rightful ruler in the South. And Henry's high-handedness with both his sons, but also with her, gave her a real cause to rebel against him. Okay, so if we actually now turn to the conflict itself, where and how did it begin? Well, the main spark was this decision to divide lands up. And Louis VII, having seen Henry crown his son, tried to court the young king across to his side. For a start, the young king marries Louis's daughter. So there's now a family bond between them. And as a result, he spends a lot more time at the French court. And Henry II is obviously becoming more alarmed and he summons the young king to him, saying, I'll give you some more money. The young king refuses and he basically flees and declares for Louis VII. When Henry II's emissaries go to Paris to bring him back, Louis says, what do you mean? Why are you sending emissaries from the king of England? The king of England is here in my court. Look, here he is. He's my son-in-law. And that was the moment when the revolt started in earnest. And uh, the moment that Henry, the young king, declares the other sons go and join in as well. Uh, that then brings matters to a head. And there's a whole series of agitations going on around Europe. Um, Scotland is drawn into the conflict. They were very unhappy about the fact that Henry had promised lands to the Scottish kings. And as soon as he gained the throne, he reneged on his promises. So there was a real cause there to join the rebellion. Um, in the South, there was a lot of discontent about the way Henry II and Richard had stirred up um, new ways of governing, which had upset the local politicians. Uh, Eleanor, again, is trying to join the rebels and is captured and imprisoned by Henry II. And there's a lot of discontent in both Brittany and Normandy as well. They're not used to being directly governed in the way that Henry wanted. So there's lots of little pockets where you will find resistance starting to coalesce around a grand cause. And what we see are three or four of those flashpoints all coming together at one time. Once Henry the Young King goes to Paris, there is now a united front. And so Henry II is forced to choose which battleground 
he picks first. He decides to go to England very quickly and put his castles on defence, bringing enough money with him to come back into Normandy to fight a campaign. But already the revolt is broken out on the borders. The main flashpoint is the Norman Vexin, which is a stretch of territory disputed by both the French king and the Duke of Normandy. And that's where revolt first starts. Um, as far as Henry's concerns, he's really worried that people who have to constantly face this attritional border warfare are going to desert him. And that's pretty much what happens. They take the path of least resistance and usher in the young king and Louis. But most of the defences hold firm. So Henry is able to push back and he also has a lot of luck. Uh, one of the French king's allies, the Count of Boulogne, his brother dies early on in the conflict. He's heartbroken leaves. So that's one front that is immediately resolved. Many of the leading English rebels are captured by forces loyal to Henry. And indeed, during the conflict, the biggest stroke of luck of all is when the Scottish king is captured as he's besieging Annick Castle um, with his household troops by forces loyal to Henry II. And so he's brought in chains down into England and ultimately dragged before Henry to make a very humble submission. So Henry has a lot of luck, but let's again not underestimate the challenge he faces. This is the medieval times. There are no emails that you can send. There's no instant messaging. There's no phone calls. There's no telegram. There's no telegraph. There is horsepower. And he had to manage his resources and rely on people to do his bidding whilst he coordinated all these theatres of war and also popped up where he was most needed. That's one of the great things about him. He spent his life on horseback and he would appear, even if not to fight, to galvanise, support, to reassure and to give faith back to the people that were fighting in his name. I mean, was there a point where it looked like he could lose this war? I mean, was that a realistic possibility? Oh, yeah. There was every chance that the Confederation ranged against him would time up in one area so comprehensively that other parts would then fall. Um, but, and I think it's a really important but, the thing that would most likely have ended the war was the death of Henry. And every time he goes chasing after the French forces to confront them in battle, the French forces flee. This isn't necessarily a war that Louis wanted to spark. And he was being a bit opportunistic. He was using the young king almost as a puppet so that he could get his point across and strengthen his hand without necessarily committing to an all-out war against one of his vassals. So, yes, you could say that Henry II could have lost it. But I think what losing the war means is worth investigating. It would have meant that he would have been subjugated to the French crown far more uh, clearly. He would have had to have make a land settlement and give power away to Henry, the young king, perhaps. It would have really weakened his position to govern and also handed a lot of power back to the local aristocracy. So for me, that's what losing the war would have looked like. Not necessarily him killed in battle or being deposed in favour of one of his sons, but actually really weakening the style of government that he'd put in place. Now, what would the attitude of your average English man and woman have been to this conflict, given that the country's just come out of the anarchy, the ruinous civil war that took place just a few years before? I mean, what would they have thought of the conflict? Most of them wouldn't have known it was going on. Right, okay. Because literacy levels simply weren't that high. 
and only those who were receiving news from afar, and those would be the monastic houses, would have thought to write down what was going on and possibly disseminate it. However, where the action was taking place, there's a really interesting reaction. Um, When some of the uh, English aristocrats who'd rebelled against Henry II landed in Norfolk, for example, and in Kent, various pockets of resistance, um, mainly stimulated by the big odd family who were constant irritants to the royal family for oh, centuries, uh, they tended to meet local resistance. There's one account where the forces loyal to the rebels were pelted um, by locals and trapped in a marsh and basically um, killed or chased away because they preferred law and order. It was in their benefits to have a strong king. And I think it's also interesting that it was the um, lower to middle ranks of society that benefited the most out of Henry's reforms. You had a much more equitable shrieval system. The sheriffs were a little bit more accountable, but also so were their officials. That happened in 1166 at Henry's uh, request. And there was also more opportunity for people of the squirearchy, those holding a little bit of land, knightly status possibly, to get into the bureaucracy now and therefore earn money in a different way. They wanted to see a nice, stable government in England and they probably didn't give any interest at all to what was happening in the continent. It was the aristocrats who were particularly concerned, particularly those with lands on both sides or who had a long-standing grievance against the crown. Okay, so... You say that Henry eventually got the upper hand. Uh, There was a capture of the King of Scotland. How did the war come to an end? It was a brokered treaty and uh, reconciliation between Henry and his sons in 1174, once they realised that the military campaign had been defeated and too many of their key allies had been brought to heel, they sued for peace. And there was a bit of an amnesty, more of an amnesia than an amnesty, because they tended to forget all of the war fled that had happened and agreed to go back to the day before uh, the sons had thrown off their allegiance to Henry. So effectively, you had a return to the status quo for most of the principal players. Some of the local officials who declared for the rebels were removed from post. Many of the aristocrats were held in prison until they paid a large ransom and then they were released. The biggest loser um, was the King of Scotland, who was forced to make a humiliating peace treaty, agreeing that the succession uh, in Scotland would recognise Henry or his heirs as the overlord of Scotland. That's a really important piece to note because it positioned Scotland as a vassal state of England in the way that Brittany was being positioned as a vassal state of Normandy. This is very much Henry's view of how his lands were managed, a key state with vassal states around them. And that treaty, which was eventually uh, overthrown by Richard, who came in and sold the rights back to Scotland, was resurrected by John. And it right at the heart of the wars of Edward I. So if we try to understand this complex relationship between England and Scotland, that is the moment where it is set out in legal terms that England is superior to Scotland, something that the Scottish kings then spent many, many years, if not centuries, fighting to clarify that that was not the case. So that was the biggest moment in this period. What Henry then did was to undertake punitive raids into the aristocratic lands using the judicial system he had created. He let loose a general heir, which is where justices would go into each territory and hear cases. And often they were raised by locals who were protesting against the rebels. So money flowed to the coffers and also the process of law was used to get vengeance. So it was a double-edged sword. 
people were being put in prison or paying large amounts of money. The crown was benefiting and it was all done under the auspices of the rule of law. And the king did a very similar thing with the forest air where he really could crack home his advantage. So it was a slow revenge on many of the people who had taken part uh, rather than any sort of uh, beheading or execution process. He kept everyone tied to him quite closely. People feared the king's local power, in England in particular, more than they ever did before. But what about his relationship with his sons? I mean, surely that couldn't just re- return to how it was before the Civil War. Well, I think this was the beginning of the end for the relationship. Um, Having said that, the next 10 years or so were relatively peaceful. After this conflict, Henry returned to chipping away at French powers along the borders. He supported Richard in his further attempts to settle the Aquitanian lands, and Henry often involved himself with those campaigns, but gave Richard far more autonomy. Henry, the young king, was left to go back, and he was given more money to continue his nightly campaigns. And Geoffrey was eventually given Brittany through right of his wife to govern pretty much as he wished. John, who by this stage was growing, was encouraged to take up the lordship of Ireland and eventually would launch his own own campaign, which was a bit of a failure. Matters only really came to a head and ended up with the last few years of his reign um, as further conflict, because once more, Henry was being challenged to try and settle this question of who would inherit what. And particularly, Henry the Young King's desire to hold Aquitaine if he couldn't have England and Normandy. He felt as the oldest son, he should have the power that he could see Richard having instead. How did Henry the Young King's early death affect the situation? It affected the situation by making Henry II completely rethink how he would divide those lands, because now Richard was the principal beneficiary. And Henry wanted to take him out of the south and give him Normandy and England, effectively set him up as the young king had been, and then reposition the other lands with Geoffrey and potentially John taking over large chunks of territory. Richard refused. He did not want to do that at all. And in fact, quite a lot of the conflict that led to the young king's death was over who would get what. So Henry never really resolved the succession issue And every time one of his sons died, because Geoffrey was the next to go again, whilst he was plotting against Henry II, it became more and more likely that one individual would gather the lot together. And what about Eleanor of Aquitaine? I mean, Henry wasn't so forgiving of her, was he? Is that right? No, not at all. Um, There's this... um, story that one of the reasons they initially separated was because she found out that Henry had started a liaison with fair Rosamond, Rosamond Bower. This is the romantic legend around one of his uh, mistresses. That seems to have happened after the war had been concluded. Um, So Henry openly lives with Rosamond and Eleanor is effectively kept in confinement for most of the 1170s and early 1180s. She's locked up in England with a small allowance and that's it. She's given no further role in Henry's government system. Whereas before, she had been seen as a sort of a regent in the south alongside Richard. However, when these family disputes were getting particularly nasty, she was often encouraged to come to the Christmas court or a family gathering to help mediate between Henry and his sons. So she was still seen as a key part in the solution, even if she wasn't playing an active role in the government. Could you give us any examples of the flashpoints between Henry and, and his sons following the war? Well, it was really around how the South would be governed and whether the young king should take over these lands. Um, There was a particular court where 
Richard had stormed off after a particularly bitter dispute with the young king. Um, they both claimed the same castle. And Henry said, well, technically, it's part of my area here in Anjou. Richard said, well, it's on the borders of Aquitaine. They refused to agree. Richard stormed off. Um, Henry said, oh, well, I'll go after him and try and make peace. And um, Henry II was quite pleased that the two sons were meant to be getting on, or at least that the young king was getting uh, a far greater sense of responsibility. Unbeknown to Henry II, the young king had already made alliances with some of Richard's enemies in Aquitaine. And he sided with them in an attempt to usurp Richard. And that led to the final war that the young king was involved in. As a result of all of this conflict, the young king found that his support ebbed away. Richard and Henry were far too strong as a military force. He was left to the last resort of ransacking churches to get plates and jewels to pay for his mercenaries. And in doing so, he eventually contracted dysentery and died seeking the forgiveness of his father, who naturally didn't trust him and didn't come and see him. And it was only when he'd heard that Henry II, it was only when he heard that his son had died that Henry II was full of remorse and realised that his last chance for reconciliation had gone. Now, your book also discusses the reigns of Henry's successors, um, Richard and John. How would you describe their attempts to hold together the Angevin Empire? Well, once... The young king and Geoffrey were off the scene. There was really only one outcome, and that was making sure that Richard inherited the lot. Um, that in its own right caused enormous trouble and strife for Henry II. It was the final alliance between Philip Augustus and Richard that drove him to his death in 1189. Um, once he was off the scene, Richard struck a deal with Philip Augustus to effectively hold the lot. And his interest was not so much on governing well, but on getting enough money to go on crusade. He was the ultimate warrior king. He'd spent his entire adult life fighting the nobles down south. And he just wanted to test his mettle against different castles, different enemies. So he used England and large parts of his continental lands to raise as much money as he could. He wasn't necessarily interested in the minutiae of government, nor, for that matter, was he interested in finding a settlement that would keep his younger brother John happy. Um, he was single-focused. He wanted to be out in the Holy Land. That was his mission. That's what he was going to do. So you already start to see the seeds of future problems being sown by Richard himself in his potential neglect of the complicated, intricate, but important machinery of government that had been set up by Henry, particularly in England, partly in Normandy, and also in other parts of the territories. And how did John capitalise on that lack of interest from his, his older brother? John is one of those fascinating characters because I think if you were to do a psychological profile on him, you can see why he ended up as untrusting and untrustworthy and psychotic as he probably was. Let's make no bones, he was a nasty piece of work. But whose fault was that? He was never given any territory to govern. No sense of, well, here you go, this is how you get involved. Um, he was just left to his own devices. And in many ways, that bears the hallmark of his older brothers, Geoffrey and the young king. So with the rift between Richard and Philip Augustus becoming more and more apparent as they went on crusade together, John saw his opportunity. And as Philip Augustus leaves the crusade earlier, spreading stories about Richard's double dealings and role in the assassination of the rightful king of Jerusalem, John saw his opportunity and offered 
to cede large swathes of land and power to Philip Augustus if John would then be seen as the rightful heir to all of this land. So he was, you know, playing a double game there. What kind of warrior was John? I mean, he's got a reputation as somebody who ran away at the first sign of trouble. I mean, is that merited? In part. Uh, he, he could be capable of outstanding bravery and daring military feats that even his more esteemed older brother Richard would have been proud of. Um, when it's all going wrong uh, at the start of his reign, he swoops and captures many of his enemies, in particular his young nephew, Arthur, um, at Mirabeau. The forces of Arthur and his supporters were besieging John's mother. He was trying to deal with revolt elsewhere. There was a real threat that his lands would split and separate. And in one military swoop, popping up, um, in the words of one historian, like a deep pantomime demon out of a trap door, he captured everybody in one place. It was a stunning victory. If you also look at some of his early attempts to wrest control from Philip Augustus when Normandy was under attack, he came up with this incredible scheme to launch a simultaneous land and amphibious attack on the forces besieging Chateau, Chateau Gaillard, which was the key fortification that held Normandy together. It nearly came off. If it had done, Philip Augustus would have had to back off. John's reputation would have been enhanced and he would have probably have driven off quite a lot of the French forces. So he could, on his day, when he screwed up his courage, be as brilliant as his brother. However, John was also unlucky. And the timing of those two assaults, the land one happened first instead of at the same time as the amphibious one, because they were held up by the tide, which was stronger than they thought, which meant both got picked off. He lost confidence and he slunk back to England and Chateau Gaillard was lost the following year. So he's a nearly man. Was his relationship with Richard as is, is poor as, it, as it's often characterised as being? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that. Um, Richard showed John a lot of leniency when he comes back from his enforced captivity uh, in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, he would have had every right to do what most other of his Norman forebears would have done and lock him up for the rest of his life. He didn't. He um, sent him on his way. John then rewarded that by tackling the people that he had previously supported. So he turned against his French allies, which again earned him even less uh, reputation amongst Richard's supporters than before. You know, this was a real turncoat in action. Um, John, for his part, resented his older brother, this dashing figure, the hero of the West, uh, with his power, with his military prowess. Um, there was a lot of resentments uh, there too. So I think it was a very dysfunctional relationship. And John was always worrying about who would succeed. Richard, on his part, never nailed the colours to the mast and said, yes, it's John, until his deathbed. Um, it could have well been his nephew, who had just as good a claim, who was already the king of the Romans and would have been an even more powerful figure. This was Otto of Brunswick. So yeah, you can understand why John was always looking over his shoulder and couldn't trust anybody because no one trusted in him, which came first. Earlier, I um, I touched upon the fact that you described this as a, as a cross between the Game of Thrones and the Sopranos. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a great analogy. I mean, what do you find most fascinating about this period of English history? What, why did you decide to write a book about it? I've always been fascinated by the late 12th, 13th century, mainly because 
I came at this from an administrative perspective. I loved the way government evolved in this period. And the person who seems to have had the greatest single hand in creating a central bureaucratic system was Henry II. Yet it was his son, John, who put it to full effect, without which we would not have built up the tensions and the problems that culminate in Magna Carta, without which you wouldn't then have the interplay between the crown and the leading magnates and administrators that ultimately lead to the birth of Parliament in Simon de Montfort's time, so on and so forth. So there's a thread running through this. If you follow the money and follow the admin, you understand far more some of the problems we face today. Put on top of that, this incredible family who, as I said, it's a cross between Game of Thrones and The Sopranos. They're all trying to do each other over, bump each other off in full battle armor most of the time. And you've got a compelling family history story thrown into the mix as well. Um, and you do get a sense of who they are. Even over 800 plus years, you can put yourself in their shoes. Who, as a parent, hasn't gnashed their teeth when their kids have been fighting and you just want to bang their heads together, but they're too old to do that. That's the situation Henry II faced for most of the 1170s and 1180s. Um, so there's also a very human story of a despairing parent trying to get their kids to play nicely. Great. And, I mean, and this appears to me like it was an almighty succession crisis. I mean, what did um, the successors of Henry, John and Richard learn from this crisis, if anything? And, and what did they do about it? They learn, I think, a couple of things. Firstly, have lots of sons. Don't forget, this is the period when um, the male heir will always inherit. But make sure the younger sons are well provided for. Um, if you look at John, he had two sons. You have Henry III, who inherits the throne. You have his far more capable um, younger brother, Richard of Cornwall, who goes on to become King of the Romans and a major European figure. And that, I think, is the biggest lesson from this period. It is that prism through which we see the past and it's relevant to the present. From that point onwards, from Henry III's time, it was about England first and England foremost. It wasn't about the king being the monarch and ruler of a large part of Europe, of which England could get on with its own thing peacefully. There was a resident king in the country for the first time since the Anglo-Saxons. So England and truly became the centre of the realm. It was, yeah. And more importantly, through Magna Carta, there was a mechanism through which dissatisfaction with that king could then be raised. And when they weren't listened to, you then have another mechanism, which is where Parliament emerges after Simon de Montfort's regime in 1264, when Henry III is then taken down by a powerful coalition of magnates. So you've got a fundamental shift in the relationship between Crown and the governed, which takes place during this period almost as a direct result of the mechanism that Henry II puts in place so he doesn't have to be there. So it is one of those great ironies that he built the foundations for a weakening of royal power. So yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one to think about when you look at the position of the royal family today, when you look at England's position with the continent, when you look at the relationship between the West and the Middle East. All of this is encapsulated in the period we're talking about. This is the moment when it fundamentally shifts. That was Nick Barrett. The Restless Kings, Henry II, his sons and the Wars for the Plantagenet Crown is out now in the UK, published by Faber. And in the US, it's due to be released in a couple of weeks' time by the same publisher. And we've now come to the end of today's episode. 
and indeed of our History Extra podcasts for 2018. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard this year, and we will of course be back in 2019, starting on Thursday, with a whole lot more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.